Welcome to episode 53 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and it is time for more crowdsourced camera discussion. Tonight, we will be talking about gas, but not just any run-of-the-mill gas you can buy online. No, we're going into the weeds of unobtainium gas, the type that you wouldn't hold your breath about being able to afford or acquire. Cameras so rare or expensive that you can only drool about them on your computer screen or your favorite podcast player. Before we get started, let's welcome the rest of the Camerosity gang. First, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, is the guy who, of all of us, probably has the best chance of finding unobtainium gas, Mr. Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul, I just tried to check your eBay store to see if you had any Null Series Leicas, and it said you're on vacation. What gives? I am officially closed for business. I will reopen in three weeks. Just send money, and when I get home, I'll send whatever you want. With Paul not available to sell us anything, the next most likely person here to find some unobtainium is Theo, whose wife buys the best Valentine's Day gifts. Hey, Theo, has Noelle found you that Snyder 35 yet? No, she has not, but in preparation of this episode, knowing it's unobtainium and expensive, she has taken the credit cards off me. She's locked me out of the <laughs> PayPal account and told me not to go anywhere near eBay. Finally, the guy who is ready and willing to buy some unobtainium, but it'll never get to him, is Mr. Anthony Rue. <laughs> hey, Anthony, have you ever considered a P.O. box? You know, I would have, but the city closed down their downtown post office, and uh, so there, there's no place for me to buy one. Oh, jeez. Plus, they'd probably lose it in the post office anyway, so. Well, it, it would be lost in Jacksonville. It would never get to Gainesville. All right, we got a waiting room full of some returning guests, so let's start letting them in. We have a perfect nine box. This is nice. I think we should just close it right here. Don't let anybody else in. Can we call us up pretty bunch? I hear Ira. Ira's here. We heard the term unobtainium and Ira showed up. That's perfect. <laughs> Bob Rodoloni. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. Two weeks in a row, we have Raymond Nason, Patrick Raps, and Rudy Burden. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Um, all right. What Raymond has in his virtual background, a stampede of cows behind him. That's rather interesting. <laughs> They're happy cows. Well, we started off the last episode with a, with a question that I honestly thought would like be answered in 15 seconds about what actually is panoramic photography. And it turned out to have a really awesome, long-winded discussion about um field of view, aspect ratio, how it relates to cinematography. So we'll see if, if we can match that opening question tonight and say, what exactly is Unobtainia? Like, is it a camera that should only be rare? Like, are we talking cameras that only single digits have ever been made? Um, for that, we, we have Ira here. Uh, or <laughs> is Unobtainium a camera that's technically common, just most people can't afford them? Like, you know, last week repeatedly talked about the X-Pan. I mean, at any given moment, you could just go on eBay and there's going to be at least a couple for sale. But most people aren't going to spend the amount of money that's needed to, to acquire one of those. So I think that that's kind of a good differentiator is that there are some cameras that if you really wanted to go buy them, you could. Uh, it's just most people can't afford them. But then there's other cameras that just you just can't find them no matter how hard you would, would want to have one. And, and you, you know, Mike, I think that there's a corollary to that. I've, I've been shooting my burning robots uh, this week and uh, shooting both the uh, the robot two and shooting the uh, the Royal. And, you know, while those cameras aren't prohibitively expensive, you know, like the the robot two, you can pick one up for 200 bucks, but you go trying to find the specialty lenses that came with that camera 
that are other than the, 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 the standard prime that comes on it. And, you know, suddenly you've got lenses that are worth 15 times the amount of the camera. And I'm also thinking about things like the Olympus OM system, you know, where you can get a decent OM one for 125 bucks, but try finding a, uh, the Zwicko 40 millimeter F2 for under a thousand dollars. Now, do you really want to put a thousand dollar lens on a hundred dollar camera? Is it really <laughs> worth it? Some, some people say that's all it's worth it. Yeah. That the camera doesn't matter at all. Well, the light white box that holds your film. It's all about the optic. To a degree. Well, there's another twist too. What about cameras that you can find or dime a dozen, but you can never find one that works? Aha. Uh -huh. That's uh the X-Pan fits in that category too. Well, there's another one. I mean, like a, a Graflex 3A. Find one that works. Yeah, the Extra, the Kodak Extra is notorious for not working. Yeah. Petries. Rudy literally <laughs> grabbed one within seconds. <laughs> well, that, that that was my second choice for the unobtainium for me. There you go. I he got it faster than even even I could get mine. That's a good example. That's a, that would have been uh, my answer a couple years ago. In fact, Ira, I used to bug the crap out of you to send me your your extra for a while. Remember, I tried to guilt you into loaning loaning it to me, but uh, you don't trust the <laughs> the post office, rightfully so. No, I don't. Uh, today, um, I got noticed that a camera was doing the mail, and I was waiting for it. And the mailman brought me three letters. I said, "Do you have a package for me?" He goes, "No." I said, "Are you sure?" Go back and you'll look in the truck. He was rooting around in that truck for a few minutes, and he finally came out with my camera. Wow. He said, oh, I'm sorry. He's in the wrong place. Oh, boy. It almost wound up uh, in Jacksonville with Anthony. Yeah. On the side of the road. So unobtainium can be a camera that's just rare, uh, low production. It could be a camera that's super expensive, or it could be a camera that technically you could find, but it's very difficult to find working or in, in really good condition. Maybe it's a you know another camera that's often used to a great degree. We were talking about um, some of the press cameras, Pentax 6.7s. It's it's very difficult to find those in both nice and working condition because, you know, pro kit cameras generally were used with severity. And even then, you know, sometimes those cameras, when they were new, they, you know, they needed service too. So I think we've defined it pretty well. I mean, I don't know if we kind of want to have someone start here with um, something. Uh, Rudy, you had the Ektra. Uh, do you yeah. want to share your what you think about that? I mean, I've talked about it quite a bit, but I, I'd be curious to hear what someone else besides me thinks about it. I can't say a whole lot about it because I just got it. I actually just looked at it for the first time today, and it looks really complicated. Uh, for me, this camera was has been on my radar for a long time when I belonged to a camera club here in Los Angeles, and somebody had them. The first time I saw it, I wanted to get one. And the guy who had it, he had 10 more of them, but he would never sell them to me. So I kept looking around, but it's it's also an expensive camera. And there are also not many of them around. It took me quite a while before I found one. So I just recently got one with uh, three other lenses to, to go with it. Rudy, was it working condition when you bought it or you had it fixed up? Um, the previous owner, I, I, it's funny that you asked, the previous owner, I think, had it fixed up. It had a note in it. <laughs> What's that say? I yeah. just discovered. Rudy just opened up the film compartment and there's a handwritten note in the film gate. So he's yeah. going to read it to us. It says, after loading with film, you must close the back or lock it and move the bottom lever to lock. This opens the metal screen. That's all it says. So is there a dark light in there? 
Yeah, he's talking about the dark slide because the the extra has magazine film backs. So you can remove the entire film compartment from that camera with film in it and swap it out with another one similar to the ADOX 300, the Mamiya magazine. And uh, the dark slide is triggered by a sliding lever on the bottom of the magazine. And uh, it there's a series of interlocks which will prevent the camera from working if that dark slide isn't in the right spot. So that's a good tip. I mean, honestly, that's an RTFM type camera. Uh, almost every time you want to use it, you yep. got to read the manual. Even if you've shot it before, it's it's always a good idea to refresh yourself um, in the event you have a working extra and want to shoot it. You want to keep it working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I applaud um, the decision to put little notes. In fact. I may actually employ that myself on some of my cameras that I, I always seem to forget how they work. Yeah, that's why I kept it in there. <laughs> well, and it's just a cool piece of provenance too. You know, I yeah. mean, we talk about provenance usually means like the original owner, but I, I think that provenance includes every owner of a camera, you know? I mean, the reality is almost none of the cameras that any of us have were, are we the original owners of? So, you know, we're, we're almost like custodians of these things at some point. Uh, these things will probably be in someone else's collection. So uh, every little touch, you can put like a little note or a hint inside of the film compartment. Because I always love it when I get like a run of the mill SLR and you'll see a handwritten sticker on the back that says set to 130 and F8 or something like that. You'll see these yeah. little notes that people write for themselves. And I think that's cool. Well, there's another piece of an obtaining that you could probably add in there is something that you can prove owned was owned by someone of note. Like a famous press photographer or something? Yeah, like I've got one. This isn't, I mean, this is no great shakes, but I've got a, um, I've got the first year uh, series of uh, uh, Super D, three and a quarter, four and a quarter, that's pristine, that was uh, that was owned by, by Stanley Gardner, the guy that wrote Perry Mason. The The lens on it is like the, the serial number is like 300 or something like that. That's cool. No, it's, it's not, it's not all that big, but it's an interesting thing. He was one of the most famous authors of the 20th century up until about 2000. Yeah. I like, I don't think I have, I mean, at least I'm not aware of any camera in my collection that was owned by a famous person, but slowly as I've been doing this, I'm starting to accumulate cameras that were once in the collection of other collectors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of cool too, to sort of remember some of the people who've passed away um, I have a couple of Dan Arnold's cameras. Um, I have a couple of Kurt Ingham's cameras. You know, I oh really? I, yeah, got I have, some... so it's it's nice to have. I mean, Paul sold me a bunch of stuff. He's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I think Paul sold some else. <laughs> so I know I it, that's that that's a good point too. You know, I mean, if you could find uh, an Ansel Adams camera that you could prove that he once owned, that would um yeah. certainly affect its value. Does that fall into the? category of unobtainium cameras which are owned by famous or important or specific people is that is that something yeah that could be considered unobtainium because it is it could be a regular camera but i mean who wouldn't want one of the pentaxes that the beatles had for instance yeah exactly well sure because i mean it's just it's it's just rare i mean i mean you're not going to go find one tomorrow the problem though is Proving that would be really hard. Sorry, where did you pick that up and how did you know the problems of that? Believe it or not, I bought it off of a Facebook marketplace type situation. That's not what it was. It was like that. And there was uh, there was certificates. There used to be a company that would sell certified items. And I can't remember the name of it right now. I wish I could think of it. I don't have it in grasp. But it was specific to that. And it was the right time that he was selling them. 
it was it was marked as such and there's some documentation with it too that there had been obtained from his estate and they certified it most of his stuff ended up at the university of texas believe it or not but this is a strange story i know a little bit about it but you know i was thinking earlier when we we're talking about unobtainium i'm not sure that there is anything now that's unobtainium <laughs> but bob bob and i both will remember before the internet when you were trying to find a camera a particular camera it was a lot of work I mean, you basically only found it through networking your friends. Nowadays, you go on the internet, you can search for it, you can find, you know, 17 cameras that in 1985 would have been impossible to find one of. The fact that it's it's such a worldwide connection now on finding things. In the mid 80s, a buddy of mine, and Bob knows him, Roger Pelham. Oh, yeah. Uh, Roger found a Leica Luxus. The Luxus was made in 1929 and 30. They made 95 of them. Uh, they were gold-plated metal and lizard-skin body. Uh, they made 95. They don't really know how many are available right now. The last one that sold was, I think, a quarter of a million dollars. But it isn't the rarest one. The rarest one is actually the Luxus II. The, the, Leica, the, the original Luxus was a Leica one Model A. The Luxus II was a Leica Model II. They only made four of those. The last price of one that sold was $2,490,000. Uh, they know where one of them is. They don't know where the other three are. So real quick, explain what a Luxus is. How is it different from a regular Leica? It's gold-plated okay. metal and lizard skin body. Uh, basically, it was made for the for the upscale market. Yeah. But, you know, they made 95 of them of the first version. Uh, Roger found one. Uh, Roger was Mr. Leica, and, and he found one. And there was a lot of question about whether it was real or not. And they uh, they went to Wetzlar with it. And uh, they in Wetzlar, they checked back to the serial number. And it was original. It was an original Lexus. And, and I owned a very small part of it because Roger couldn't afford to buy it. And so about, a, I think there were eight or nine of us that were his buddies that uh, all kicked in and, and uh, put up the money for Roger to go buy the Lexus. I'm wondering if you could have... Um taken it's a bottom loader taking it off and let people like sniff the air in there you know for like 20 <laughs> bucks you know that could be like it sniff the air from the luxus for 20 bucks and if enough people did it then you could you could afford it <laughs> well the the thing is it was probably a horrible camera to shoot with it was just unusual yeah. it was just rare and the rarity controls the price i'll never have you know the desire to buy a, a two hundred fifty thousand dollar leica but here's my my 40 year old story of of, of unobtainium. Uh, back around 1982 83, I was living in Atlanta, and there was a uh, I was working at the the High Museum of Art, and they put on they put together an exhibition called the Machine Age in America. It was put together with the Brooklyn Museum, and it was dedicated to like the crossover between fine arts and industrial design. And they had an entire room dedicated to Walter Dorwin Teague, and I didn't know who Teague was at the time. And I mean, I was an active shooter at the time. I was a professional shooter at the time, but I wasn't really a camera collector. And I walked into that room and they had the number one, a gift camera and the Bantam and the metalist. And they had his bluebird radio and like several of the other industrial objects that he had designed. And I was just gobsmacked. Like the idea of owning that number one, a gift camera has been at the back of my mind for 40 years now. And it's one of these things where I don't like to buy cameras unless I know I'm going to shoot them. I don't know if there could be a more impractical camera to buy than a Kodak 1A gift camera. 
it's just a rather not I don't want to say mundane, but it's pretty uh, plain vanilla Kodak folder of that period. I believe it's got a meniscus lens. It's just for, it's a very average camera. But, you know, it came with this incredible enameled Art Deco design on the back and around the lens. And then the, the kicker was that it came with a uh, a cedar box with the enameled top on it with the same design. And I want it just as an art object. But this is a camera now that I have seen in more art museums than any camera that I've ever seen produced. I was like, I, I just keep on running into it in museums. You know, I'd be in um, Milan. And it'd be in the, in the in the art museum. I'd be in Berlin, and it'd be in the art museum. Uh, you go to MoMA, and it's in their permanent collection. You know, one of these days, it's like it would be such a splurge to spend that much on a camera that is just really an art object that I would never shoot. One day, maybe I'll get it. Same with the Bantam. You know, I think the Bantam is one of the most beautiful camera designs ever. But boy, every person I've ever talked to that has shot with one says. You do not want to shoot with one. Well, two things. Funny you mentioned that. But before I, I make that point, anytime you have a camera that cross has cross appeal, so you have camera collectors who are into it, but then you mentioned the Teak Art Deco cameras, There's that sort of opens up the collectability of those models to people who just like Art Deco stuff or like Teague design stuffs or Ra- Raymond Levy, you know, because they did Coca-Cola bottles, locomotives, vehicles, things like that. A lot of industrial design. So they have their own collectors. A Kodak Signet 35 doesn't have a lot of value. You can find them for 20 bucks on eBay. But get the black and olive drab Kodak Signet 35, and that's worth way more because camera collectors want them. Military collectors want them. You know, Korean War collectors want them. You know, so there's a lot of things that could happen to a particular style or type of camera that I think adds to its value and makes it harder to find. So, uh, you know, increasing the unobtainium quotient. I've actually got one that I just ran into. I don't own it, but a friend who uh, is a collector, uh, his friend who was a collector he'd known for years, passed away recently, and he just went and got a huge amount of cameras from him in Colorado. And he came back with a Mickey Mouse Target 616. Yeah, the, the Mickey Mouse, the World's Fair box cameras are worth a crap ton. This isn't a World's Fair. The- this is one that was never actually sold to the public. They were did them as prototypes. Okay. And they were working on it. And there was some antique collectors back in the 90s that found a bunch of them as prototypes in the boxes. And apparently they're just crazy valuable. Some yeah. people claim that they're not even real, that they were fake. The way that it's done, it's they pretty much know that they were real. Most people that do the investigation. Hey, Paul. Don't you have a Mickey Mouse camera you just found today? I do. You have it near you? Yes. It's not going to be as worth as much as that box camera. It's the Japanese Fuji DL7. <laughs> and uh, it's, it was made for the Japanese market, licensed by Disney. And it's brand new in the box. The lens cap has Mickey on it. The whole box is written Mickey Mouse with Mickey's face on it. Can I show my other camera now, Mike? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. This is definitely unobtainium, believe me. <laughs> it's a mcdonald's french fry camera yeah, that's awesome i love those kinds of things novelty it's a it's a large mcdonald's fry what is that a 110 camera is 120 120 so yeah 110 110 yeah yep i've got a mickey 110 that's just a little purple one it's it's got mickey mouse on it in yeah. schematic oh does that count as a spy camera <laughs> <laughs> I think the value of the, the McDonald's French fry camera just increased by infinite dollars because it's yeah, still worth, the- it's it's still worth zero. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, well let me ask Ira. Ira, is, is something like the uh, Teague gift camera something that interests you as a collector, or is that just outside of the realm of what you're interested in collecting? I have to plead ignorance on that. I never heard of that camera. Ah, pretty rare. I'm sure you've seen it. It's one of the colored folding cameras. It has a whole bunch of stripes and squares and colored boxes. They're usually brown. I think they come in teal. You've oh, probably hmm. seen one. He, no, he made it for he made it for the Canadian market, and oh. this was separate from the ones that came in different colors. So it was a one A, and they called it the gift camera because it came in this beautiful cypress enameled lacquered box uh, that had the the that replicates the design. Yeah, I mean, if you if you just do a search for Teague one A gift camera. You'll see it show up in the catalogs of, of museums around the world. It's really kind of fascinating. I saw one in person once in Fountain Hills, Arizona at a yard sale, but the guy wanted so ridiculous amount of money for it, I couldn't touch it. We were laughing earlier. I'm in the process of going through a pretty large collection right now. And this morning, I, I handled 80 boxes of cameras, and I figured there were eight boxes in each cam, eight cameras in each box. So I handled 640 cameras so far today. And I knew I had to quit when I opened a box and found a combat graphic, oh. but it was, it was, a, it was a civilian version. It was a black one rather than the green one, which is even rarer, more rare than the, uh, than the green one. And, and I, I picked it up, looked at it for a minute, put it back in the box and thought, Holy shit. What did I just have at that time? I knew it was time to quit for the day. Didn't they make those in red too? Didn't they paint over a bunch of the actual service models and sold them to the, to the civilians, I painted them red to differentiate them. That's possible. They might have done that when they decommissioned them. Yeah. When the military decommissions camp, I don't know how it is now, but back in those days, they would send them to a central location, and the central location would uh, dispose of them all at one lot. So, Anthony, you had mentioned uh, the Bantam, the Bantam special. So, I don't know why, but I, I get attracted to cameras that come in the original boxes. So, I have a Bantam special in the original oh, box. Oh, even the box is beautiful. The box is in pretty good shape. I mean, it shows wear, but like the corners aren't destroyed. It has the field case inside or the manuals and stuff. I want the I, w- I want the font. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely cool. It's like an old um what do they used to call those? We it was a restaurant where you'd walk up and it was a bunch of machines like and an automat. An automat, yeah. Yeah. But one thing that I, I thought was kind of neat about this in in my because I've reviewed the Bantam special before. So I knew that this type of camera existed, but I had never seen one. But most Bantam specials were made before the war and they all have German Comper shutters on them. But the ones made after the war, you know, externally look the same, but it has a Supermatic shutter. So it doesn't ha- it has a, an actual Kodak shutter. So it kind of looks like the the shutter that's on the Chevron the tourist with the 800 this one doesn't go to 800 though it goes to 400 but what i really like about it is the um the cocking lever i'll have pictures of this you can see it says kodak right there at the top whereas the the compor one doesn't say that so i actually really like this one it look for one it looks different i think the supermatic just kind of has a neat look to it but it's far less common they made these after the war and i just you know obviously 828 film didn't really catch on you know they, i think they made this until like 48 or something like that so there's far fewer of these the bantam specials with the supermatic shutter so so with the bantam specials when everyone says you shouldn't shoot them you shouldn't shoot them is it purely because it's eight to eight film or is the actual other actual cameras difficult to use the eight to eight in my opinion is the biggest reason not to i mean it's similar in build quality to a retina to be honest with you even though it's an american-made camera 
The thing I don't like about it, and I've made this comment about Weltas, when you hold it, the door opens to your left instead of to the right, like on a um, like on a retina. And I just ergonomically like having a door in in front of you where your hand kind of wants to grip the camera and just feels kind of awkward. It also uses uh, like the Zeiss Contessa thirty five and the Super Icontas, where part of the rangefinder is actually on the lens. And as you can see, and I'll have pictures of this, it's really, really close to the door. It's just the ergonomics of it aren't great. I don't think it's as bad of a camera as some people make it out to be, though. I kind of trashed the first one I ever shot, but I didn't know it at the time. It was just broken. It, the, the calibration was off. I couldn't get sharp images on it. And uh, I had a reader of my site insist that I needed to try a better working one. This one I've never tried yet. It, in good working condition, the Bantam Special is a fine camera. The one advantage to 820, well, the, the biggest disadvantage is you get eight images a roll, which, you know, compared to 35 millimeter, we can get 20, 24, 36. But one thing that is kind of nice is that the exposed image size in 828 is larger. Uh, instead of a 24 by 36 negative, like you would get on 35 millimeter film, you get a 28 by 40. So I, I wouldn't quite call that medium format, but you do get, you know, roughly 30 to 40% more area of your exposed image size, which, you know, you scan that you, you can get pretty nice looking images from these cameras. It's just the practicality of 828. It's too bad. Kodak didn't make a version of this camera that shot 35 millimeter. I think it would have been much more popular, but I think that that was the retina. So they really had no reason to do that. As, as we're speaking about unobtainium and uh, Mike and I had a little bit of discussion on this before we jumped on today was does that include cameras that were never quite made or were so only made it into prototype? And and the one that sort of jumped to my mind straight away was the the TLR that Nikon apparently either drew up and never made or made up a prototype. Mike and I didn't quite sort of land on whether they actually made the prototype. So Bob, being our resident Nikon export, uh, expert, yeah. did, did they actually make a prototype of the TLR? Yeah, they did. Supposedly they made two of them. And the reason that they scrapped the project was they were not capable of making a leaf shutter at that time that would work. Nobody in Japan could make it, so they'd have to import it from overseas. Uh, so they scrapped the whole idea and just went with the Nikon 35 millimeter. But they did make a couple of them. I've seen a picture of one. I'm sure Nikon has one stuffed away somewhere, but Nikon is very tight with their prototypes they don't show them until you get kind of like force them into it but uh, not like like i mean they just hide everything but uh, they did make a couple of them and as far as i know none are owned by private individuals at all none have ever shown up in a private collection that i'm aware of and those were 35 millimeter uh, two, two and a quarter two and a quarter tlr it took a 75 millimeter lens which nikon made they, they made 75s for other people aries and whatever the lens wasn't the problem it was the shutter they just could not make the shutter. Yeah, nobody in Japan was capable in 1947 of making a good leaf shutter that was accurate, so they scrapped it. Robert, let's say you wanted a, teal, a, a 120, two and a quarter TLR, and you really liked Nikkor lenses. Are there other options for TLRs that were made that have Nikkor lenses? Aries, Aries made two models that came with Nikkor lenses. They had a special... I think one was called like the Aries Flex Z or whatever, but they didn't give them a special letter or number. And they were more expensive, of course. Also, um, Sawyer, who made the, uh, a smaller um, 127 TLR, they also came with, with Nikkor lenses, some of them. And they, again, were, were you know priced higher. And also, Aries made a 35 millimeter 
not 30, I'm sorry, not a 120 folder that came, not with a Zuko, but with a, uh, a Nikkor lens on it. And Mamiya also uh, made a, the Mamiya 6. The Mamiya 6, yeah. Can also be found with Nikkor lenses. So they're out there. You know, Nikon was making it for other people. They had the formulas, but they didn't have a use for the lens themselves because they weren't making anything that size. But they had the lenses, so they sold them to almost anyone who would be willing to pay for them. And all companies charged extra for them. With the, with the Aries TLRs, did, were they actually branded Nikon or Nikon? Or did they... Yep, all those, uh, the Mias, uh, the Aries and whatever, all had Nikkor lenses that are labeled Nikkor lenses, yeah. And they charged extra for it. Matter of fact, I've seen a couple of ads, not American ads, but Japanese ads, where they show that version or there's a second version with necro lenses and it always has a much higher price. It looks like Rudy's trying to show something. Is that of a necro lens? It doesn't have. I, I don't see the name on it. It, it says Topcon. Yeah, that's okay, the Topcon. So that's, that's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Most of them came with top core lenses. Yeah. 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 The Aries had, um, and then some of them had the coral lenses that Aries yeah. made too, but. I've I've only seen a couple of the Aries Flex. They're good looking TLRs, a, a little bit nicer than the run of the mill Japanese Elmo Flexes and such. But um, to get one with the um, with the Nikkor lenses, that's on Obtainium. Mike, as long as we're talking about prototypes, what's the story on that Minolta Sky? Ooh, now that's a good one. When you think back to the thirty-five millimeter rangefinder wars of the fifties, we'll say the Japanese generally, uh, you know, released a lot of screw mount. Leica copies. Canon, of course, made a ton. Nika, Tanak, Honor, uh, Leo Tax, or a bunch of them. Even Minolta made a 35 millimeter rangefinder. But when Leica came out with the M3, very few people even attempted to compete in that market. I mean, there was a Chinese company that made a copy of the M3, but it was just a cheap copy. But there, almost nobody was willing to go head to head with Leica with the, with a bayonet mount. 35 millimeter rangefinder, but Minolta tried. Ira, I know you know a little about this camera too, but Minolta released a camera called the Sky. It was completed. I do believe about a hundred were made. They were either never sold or they were sold in such low quantities that um, they're unobtainium to the max. Ira, I don't think you have one, do you? Wish. You wish, yeah. That's a wish camera right there. I don't have it in front of me. I wish I would have prepared better, but uh, it's, it's basically Minolta's version of the m3 and it had a bayonet mount it had multiple aspect ratios for the viewfinder um i do believe it had a hinged rear door you know it was a slightly larger camera it was it was essentially meant to go head to head with that do you know if it was the same bayonet mount as the leica m so i've heard people say that it used the leica m mount but if you actually google so you can find images of them because like i said they do exist if if a hundred were made, then there are there's got to be people somewhere on this planet that have at least one in their collection, and it does not have the standard four lug, uh, the four bayonet. If you look at M mount, there's four bayonets instead of three, like most had, and it does not look the same to me. So I do not believe the Minolta Sky had the M mount. It was almost certainly a proprietary mount that Minolta had come up with. And one of my earlier McCune's catalogs books. Uh, Minolta M mount is what he makes reference to and screw mount, but he, he specifically says Minolta M mount. Yeah, it's, I, I do believe I don't have one in front of me or even an image of it. My Google Chrome isn't responding, but yeah, it's a good looking camera. The one thing I will tell you, if anybody goes out and tries to look for Minolta sky, somebody took some other camera and made it look. It was a Yashika YF. Yeah. Someone took a Yashika camera 
and doctored it up to make it look like a Minolta sky, but it's a fake. But unfortunately, the original is so rare that the fake shows up more often than the original one does. So if you were to Google Minolta sky, you were most likely going to see the fake as opposed to the original. But from from as best as I can understand, and, and believe me, if I'm wrong, correct me, but I, I think they made about 100 of them, like proof of concept kind of things. Maybe they were sold, uh, you know, elite, or maybe they're giving away as gifts because the Japanese were, were kind of big on awarding, you know, prestigious cameras to like executives or, you know, their favorite customers or something. Now, Ira, didn't Kanaka have a kind of unobtainium rangefinder too? I don't. Yeah. What was uh, that one called? I have no idea. I have pictures of it somewhere, but I don't know where. Ira, what are we paying you for? <laughs> Mimi had one for sale. She was selling it a few years ago for thirty thousand dollars, which is a little steep for me. Yeah. So I had to pass it up. I don't know whether Boris bought it or not. Somebody bought it. Yeah. I think the Konica camera, though, like one was made, whereas the Minolta Sky. No, is no rare... more than one. I, I think there was like three or six or something like that. OK, very low, but it was definitely in single digits. I, I did. I did have one here that's along the lines of that type of thing. And I actually want to find out if anybody's an expert knows a little bit about this camera. I've got a I've got a uh, an England Lloyd press camera, which. It's it's an MPP. It's a micro precision camera. It's basically a Mark II rebadged by a company called Andrew Lloyd in Boston. They only made them for two years. And the MPP, is, it's an English camera. The MPP Collector Society says there's 23 known. Looks like a Burke and James kind of. Yeah, it looks a little bit. But here's the best part about this. This thing has more movements than you. Look at this. It's got these studs that run through. So the back has a bellows? The back's yeah. got, no, it runs all the way through. It's got tilt shift. And okay. very similar to what Linhoff did. Yeah, exactly. Well, so you can see it'll tilt this way. So is I I'm gonna show my ignorance with press cameras. Is there an advantage to tilting the film plane versus the lens? It's it just gives you more a solid square, but you can do a lot okay. more with it that way. And you can do a combination of both. So is it just a re, is it a rebadged MPP? Because MPPs are yeah, it's well, it's it's a little bit more than rebadged because it doesn't really look like it. If you look down at the bed, it's a crinkle black. Okay, so it doesn't quite look like an MPP. I mean, it's you can recognize it as such, yeah. but it's it's different. It's a leather outside, but it's a but the the bed itself in this area here and the lens board and so on is a crinkle black finish. As far as I can tell, Andrew Lloyd was a company that made all kinds of optical specialty things since the mid eighteen hundreds, and they would buy from others and remanufacture, rebadge it, and then market it. So it was a little like a, a premium. I mean, a little bit like Tower, I guess, Sears, except it was done on a real high-end basis. So they were doing a value-added yeah. situation to the camera. Yeah, and, and this camera, the Mark II didn't come with a rangefinder, and it's speculated that that uh, Lloyd was adding the rangefinders to it because this has a rangefinder. I'm getting sort of interested in those because recently this collection I'm going through, I found in one box Free Riley's. Uh, Riley was a, a press camera made in Los Angeles by a guy who was actually an aerospace engineer back in the 50s. And he had a good friend who was a photographer for the uh, one of the Los Angeles newspapers. I'm not sure really which one, but the photographer was complaining that the cameras they were issued wasn't do weren't doing the job for him. And so, he said, so Riley says, well, hell, I'll make you a camera. So he, uh, in his garage, started making the Riley's. They were also called Rilexes. Uh, as sort of a, a, a takeoff on the graph Lexus. 
but they look they also looked a little bit like the MPP, though they were didn't have the movements the MPPs had. The Rileys also had nice shiny silver bodies instead of leather covered ones. They did. They were was it were they aluminum? I can't remember. They I was just gonna say with those MPPs though, with the movements at the back, how close do they resemble a monorail four by five camera in that case in terms of movements? Are they you know three quarters of the way there in terms of movements or are they I would say, yeah, a good three quarters, yeah. The, the the big deal about the moving back was not just the movements. It was to be able to focus closer. The Mamiya press cameras had the same, had this, mm. one of the models. I can't, I I, I always got them. Super 23. Super 23 has a movable back. So if you want to do close-ups, you simply put the ground glass back on it. I was trying to think of the same thing. It's, I, I knew there had to be a different reason besides just like taking pictures of buildings or something. Yeah, it, it was basically a built-in extension tube that you didn't have to spart around taking the lens off and putting the tube on. And well, and anytime you extend the bellows frontwise, like I'm thinking of the Mamiya, the C series TLRs, the further out you push the lens and shutter, the more the more unstable it gets. You know, so if you can kind of split that difference for macro by moving the lens a certain distance and then also moving the film plane, you're kind of like having the 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 extension you know the less likely you are to have error sorry how does that affect the dreaded uh scheinflug principle <laughs> scheinflug is something totally different scheinflug is a movement that's a front tilt has had and uh, only front only the front the only camera that could ever really do a scheinflug aside from some of the uh the press cameras like that was the Rolly sl66 so that one tilts back but it's got some good movements on the front too yeah, that's what I was thinking, actually, because you've, you've effectively got a field camera that's got a lot of the monorail movements. So you could go out and do macros of flowers out in the wild and things like that, that, that rock your boat. So that's actually quite impressive. So, Mike, you were talking about these like rare and uh, limited edition run cameras. Uh, just this week, I was doing my uh, biannual crawl through eBay looking for wide angle lenses that I could afford for my robot royal uh, 36. He came across somebody that has a Robot Royal 18 up for sale. And most people have probably never heard of a Robot Royal 18. And that's because they only made 77 of them. And it was a true robot half frame camera. Half frame. Yeah. Cause they were, they were usually square. And then right. the Robot Royal was full frame or double frame. Yeah. And then they made the 18, which was a true, like 18 by 24. They made, I believe it was 77 of them. Wow. I heard and 75. 75? That's what I heard. And, you know, they cost about, I mean, you know, you know, cost is, I guess, relative to me. They cost about the, <laughs> the price of like a, a, a used Honda Civic. You know, they're not the most expensive camera in the world, but. The problem with assigning value with rare cameras, though, is the market fluctuates so wildly. I mean, Paul, you've even commented that just in general, like regular camera sales are down right now across the board, right? Like you've spoken to other eBay sellers and everybody's complaining. Online sales are just stuff is down, right? Yes. So then you you factor in a rare camera like you know the the robot royal 18 and it's just so impossible to predict what someone can pay for something because you know i i had an article that i've written on my site many years ago and i keep sharing it to people every time you get one of those questions on facebook of what's my old camera worth and um the, the name of the article is literally what's my old camera worth and i basically say the camera is worth what someone's willing to pay for it 
And if you're talking about eBay, you change it to the camera's only worth what two people are willing to pay for it, you know, in, in, in the sense of an auction. So, you know, it, it can really, really be difficult when you look at rare cameras because you just don't have a lot of past history to be able to just gauge what it can be. Like we could all, we all know what a K1000 is going to sell for. You know, you, you have a Pentax K1000 or your Shika, you know, Electro 35 or, you know, any ca common camera, but you start getting to these rare cameras and yeah, you might find one that sold at a Flint's auction or a lights auction for, you know, 10,000 euro. Uh, but that doesn't mean you, you, you can get that finding those rare cameras and, and figuring out the value of them. And not only that, the people who are selling them generally want those high prices and they're not willing to let them go for anywhere close to what maybe that the current market might dictate its worth. Rare gear, your audience, I, I to truly understand the value of a product is such a small audience to really, you know, get what a, a piece is really worth. Hey, Mike. Oh, look at that. He's got a robot Royal 18 right there. I, I was holding one up right now. So you've got, so Royal or uh, Iris got one of the seven. Which, exactly how do you say the same from the front? You're going to be, I don't know if you could ever see it. It has two lines etched into the viewfinder for the half frame. It's a square, it's a square window. Ira's holding up a robot Royal, which has what looks to be a square viewfinder, but the front glass has etched lines, which would be how you would frame the, uh, the half frame. So that's not adjustable though, right? Like you can't take no. out a mask. They're, they're no. okay. Oh, that is very cool that you have one. Ray and I are both our eBay sellers and, one of the things that that's it's a new the new reality is eBay has changed the way they do things and and uh, eBay fees of ten percent today. If you want to sell on eBay, you have to sign up for promoted listings, which costs the seller another nine percent. So basically, an eBay seller is going to if you, if he really wants to sell something, you're going to sell it and pay twenty percent commission. What that what that means to the buyer is the buyer is going to be paying more too because the seller is going to have to raise the prices to be able to afford to pay the extra ten percent. So th that's going to have an effect, I think, on the collector's market too. Sure. It, but in reality, if you look at it, it's really not that much different from going to an auction no. because at an auction you're going to pay a buyer. They charge like thirty percent or even yeah. more. Now. I got a real quick cool one here. A camera we talked about on the Konica show is the Konica 3M. This was the last of the Konica 3s. It had the 3, the 3A, and the 3M. And the M is easy to spot because it has this flip-up selenium meter that you actually have to flip up in order to see if it'd be fine. It looks like Rudy, Rudy's got one too. Okay, but Rudy, so open up your film compartment. A feature this camera also has that a lot of people don't think realize, there is um, a removable mask that can shoot half frame. So we've talked about half frame before and uh, some of the earliest half-frame cameras would, or I should rephrase, some of the earliest Japanese half-frame cameras would be like the Olympus Pen, which came out in 59. The 3M came out in 58. And what I like is that this mask is removable, so you can take it out. So it's a full-frame camera, but it has this mask, which is just a tiny little piece of metal, which, as you might guess, is always lost. But in the upper right-hand corner is this little finger and when you install it, it pushes a lever inside the film compartment, which turns the 3M from a double stroke into a single stroke. Huh. So one stroke is for the half frame, two strokes is for the full frame. So uh, that's why I was asking about the Robot Royal. I wanted to know if the mask came out, but apparently it doesn't. So when we talk about unobtainium, 
this camera is not that hard to find. I mean, it certainly isn't common, but I'd be willing to bet you can go on eBay and find a couple 3Ms. This little dinky, thin <laughs> piece of plastic, probably two, two cents of steel is probably worth more, double more than what the whole camera is worth because they're so easily lost. When you put that in the camera, does it effectively engage the viewfinder to let you know you're at half frame? No, the viewfinder has projected um, frame lines that have the normal 50 millimeter and then there's just lines okay. that are always there. So it does nothing to the viewfinder. What The only thing it does is the finger pushes a lever, which I text, I mean, you can actually see it. I, this will be hard to see, but there's a little lever here that moves. And when the, when the mask is in, it pushes the lever and then it, it turns the film advance into uh, a single stroke instead of double stroke. But I see lines in the viewfinder, but there's lines kind of more in towards the middle. Right. That's so the, the lines are always there. You can't get rid of yeah. those. Whether or not you have the mask, you can always see the half frame lines. Yeah. So that's how you would frame it. That's then. how you would frame it. Uh, the, the auto reflex works kind of the same way, except instead of lines, Ira, if you look through the viewfinder of the Automax, you'll see these like little teeth above and below about where a half frame image would be. And those are always there too. So you should see little, yep. they look like little triangles. Yeah, well, it's etched lines going all the way down the. Uh, oh, there are etched lines I couldn't remember. But yeah, that's yeah. the same thing. So these are both made by Konica. Uh, this camera is obviously eight years before the SLR, but they both kind of accomplished the half frame, full frame in different ways. And, you know, this you have to do before loading your film in. By the way. Yes. But wait, there's more. Konica <laughs> made a half frame version of their FT1 motor camera. It's called oh, the wow. Konica. FT1 Pro half. Mike, I sent you this. I sent you that picture. There was one on eBay about the Konica episode. Yeah. You know the uh, the FT1 has another name. It's called the Unupworkium camera. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they never work. <laughs> Garbage. What they ship them from the factory? The battery the compartments are pre corroded. Right. They they include the corro you actually have to pay extra to remove the corrosion from the factory. Otherwise, they just leave it on there. That's like a PAX. You can never find a PAX that the helicoid isn't frozen like it's yeah. got cement in it. Richard Olison had told me that he tried to clean a PAX once, and he tried um, the typical solvents that you would normally use to like remove the green goo from like an AGFA. None of work. it worked. He had to use concentrated xylene. Yeah, xylene. Or toluene. Yeah, they both, yeah. He, he said he soaked it. He completely disassembled the entire shutter and just submerged it. Like he was worried it was going to melt. Yep. The metal did not melt, of course, but it did actually dissolve the whatever they use, the super glue. I started taking mine apart because I really want to use it because it's a kind of a cool little camera. They are neat looking, yeah. I have heard that uh, those things actually use whale in the lubricant. Slow drying cement. Vlad Kern has very, with a straight face, said they've used animal fat on some Soviet yes. cameras as lubricants. Yeah, well, supposedly the the PAX cameras are notorious for that. And I have heard, I don't remember the exact source, that they use uh, liquefied whale blubber, blubber. which blubber. eventually, <laughs> eventually unliquefied. Blubber, the blubber cam. Real quick, before we get off Konica, though, I did look up the rangefinder I was thinking of. It was called the Konica FR. And Ray, it came out at the exact same time as the Konica F. Really? It actually had the same shutter. So the Konica F had that one two thousandth of a second high synchro metal blade shutter. It was very similar to the Comper or the, the um, 
the Copal Square, but it was a different design, but it used the M39 like a thread mount. So it was a screw mount rangefinder, but it had a focal plane metal blade vertically traveling uh, high synchro shutter. So they, and it they, was huge. It was a big, yeah, it was huge. It was probably like, 50% bigger than a Leica M3 in all dimensions. Yeah. When you take off the lens and you see the M39 mount on this thing compared to the rest of the body, it's like, it looks really weird. Well, the F is like that in the uh, FM and FPs. Yeah, the original Konica F mount was just very, the Konica, for all the things that company did right, man, they sucked at designing lens mounts. They just, they, they it took, I mean, they finally got it right. The AR mount was pretty good. But um, their first couple attempts did, were not very good. Oh, yeah. Right into the cloud. Yeah. Your cows are attacking us there, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still have your F here. Yeah, I know. I, I, you may have to ship it back. I'm, I'll be in Chicago next month, but. Um... I'm kind of hoping like squatters rights will kick in and. and... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'll get it back to you. You guys um, talking about that mask made me think of another camera that's pretty rare. Have you guys heard of the Okaya Lord? The 5D. I've heard of it, but I've never seen one. Okay, so it's kind of, it's got this really cool clamshell, kind of cool clamshell. But here's the reason I brought it up. Apparently, it's fairly rare. I don't know that much about it, but it's a double stroke um, shutter. But so it's got this little lever on the bottom, right next to the opening. There's this there's this little button here. Push that, and it pops out a little deal. That what it can do is you see that there's a little blade that'll slice the film partway through the roll. Like an exacta, exacta. Yeah, exactly. It's a post World War II camera. It was made for the American market for soldiers. I did not know there were any rangefinders that could do that. The Soviet KMZ Start had that that blade too that could cut the film. The idea being that you would do you would do cassette to cassette. But this one's not made for cassette to cassette. That's what's so odd about it because you have that to use weird. a dark bag anyway. <laughs> I want to throw it back to Rudy. Rudy shared with us the Ektra. You there has to be some other unobtainium that's come your way recently that uh, you could talk about. There you go. That's the Kodak Super 620, right? Yep. The first selenium light meter camera ever made. You wrote the article off. Well, more than that, it's the first auto exposure camera ever made. Yeah. But also very unreliable cameras. So they ended up not making that many of them. And the ones that were made were sent back to the factory to be repaired. So they only believed that about 750 were made yeah that's the number that's that's most commonly believed somewhere between yeah. 700 and 800 i got in a discussion and and i'll put discussion in air quotes with david gents about the true number of those he thinks it's considerably higher than that but uh, whatever the true number is it, they're, they're very uncommon like we talked about at the top of the show they're also very uncommon to find working yeah. i have one uh rudy just like yours and the sh- your shutter i think works I believe your range finder is accurate, but sadly for as innovative as that camera is, it falls into the same category that we've talked about, like the Kodak monitor and the tourist where the bellows are just shot. All of them. If you find a Kodak super 620 on eBay, where the seller claims the bellows have no light leaks, they're either lying to you or they just haven't opened the camera. And the next time you open it, you'll hear the familiar. Of the bellows creating light leaks. Super Mint Plus? Yeah, Super Mint Plus with Swiss cheese. Uh, plus, plus, plus. <laughs> <laughs> so this might be controversial, but um, I'll defend it. If unobtainium can include digital, um, I have an, what I thought used to be an unobtainium digital camera 
this thing here is an Epson RD1. And I had a chance to, to play with this camera. And at first I just thought, like I was briefly aware that there was an Epson. So this thing looks like a Leica, it's actually made by Cosina. So it's very similar to the Foatlander Bessas, like the 2000s, those film cameras that you could get with a contacts mount or um, the screw mount or whatever. But it's a digital camera. It's a digital rangefinder. It's got a six megapixel sensor on it. So, you know, it's from like 2004 or something like this. This thing predated the Leica M8 as the first digital rangefinder ever made. But um, I'm going to write a review of this camera. And I can already tell you the headline of this camera is going to be is, you know, we've talked about on this show, you've seen them on Facebook, all these attempts to turn film cameras into digital cameras, the I'm back uh, digital sensors that replace the film plane. Like people want this like hybrid film slash digital experience. And I will tell you, it does not get more film-like for a digital camera than this. I'll have pictures of this, but if you take a look, what am I showing right there? What is that little... A shutter-cocking device. There is a shutter-cocking... It's not a film-advanced lever, but there is a traditional lever for cocking the shutter. So you have to manually cock the shutter, and it's a, it's a vertically-traveling metal blade shutter, you know, whatever Cosina was using back then. So you have to cock the shutter every time you fire it. It has a mechanical speed dial. Epson at the time was owned, or they may even still be owned by Seiko, the watch company. So there's this dial with four analog needles. It's a watch face. So when I turn it on. Oh, good. You're not on empty. That's cool. The large hand is your exposure counter. So you can see numbers from 500, 150, 20, and then 10 down to zero. So the large hand counts down how many exposures you have. There's a smaller needle for your white balance. There's an E and F. I mean, it literally looks like a, a, ga- a gas gauge on a car. And then there's a fourth needle for R and H, and that's your um, quality. So like R is raw, H is high, and N is normal. So it's got analog gauges for those things. Now, this is a digital camera. What does this look like to you? Rewind. It looks like a rewind knob. But it's not the rewind knob. It's actually the mode dial. So when you want to change modes or you're using the LCD, you actually rotate what looks like the rewind knob on a film camera to actually control. And there's there's click stops. You probably can't hear it. Yeah, I can. It feels like any normal film camera. I mean, it's very heavy, very solid camera. It uses the Leica M mount. So I, I'm lucky enough to have a Sumalux M on there. All black. It's an optical viewfinder as good as any Leica. I mean, this is this is exactly as good as you'd ever see in a, in a Leica film camera. It uses Leica M mount. It's got these analog needles. So I, I like this thing. I did not expect to like it as much as I did. It is a little weird using a digital camera with an optical rangefinder, though. The frame lines don't per- perfectly match the focal length of the lens. So this is a 50 millimeter lens. And it does have a crop sensor, so you gotta you gotta take into account crop factor. But um, that's really cool. You know, the top design reminds me of is it the Nikon thirty five Ti? The Ti, the Ti had needles too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so that's my that's my digital gas, and it has a little LC in the back, which and you can actually flip it around. Oh wow! Oh, wow. Sorry, what do you know about the sensor? I know it's a crop sensor. It's I think it's APS-C. I don't know who made it. Paul might know. Nikon. It's the same sensor as the D70. Okay. But I tell you what, I've already seen some of the sample images from this and it's outstanding. For a six megapixel sensor, the images look great. 
You know, I mean, obviously it doesn't have the infinite cropability of a, of a modern 20 plus megapixel sensor like you would expect today. But for an image where that doesn't require a lot of cropping, the detail that this thing makes is, is really, really nice. So for a camera, this came out in 2004 and this is the first version. There's three versions of this camera. This is the first one. The second one is physically the same. It just has a different firmware. And then the third version removed the, the swiveling screen and it added uh, c compatibility for higher capacity cards. Oh, and it doesn't have a USB port anywhere on it. So in order to get the images off the camera, you physically have to remove the card, stick it in the computer and transfer from your computer. So while that's not obviously as complicated as developing film in a weird sort of way, it's like an extra step you have to do to get images off the camera. So mm -hmm. I think, I mean, even though it slows you down, I think that's kind of cool too. And are those CF cards or uh, SD? Cards? SD, SD, yeah, regular oh. SD. It it only supports up to a two gigabyte card though. Oh. You, you need older ones, the the SDHC ones and the XC ones. I'm told will not work. But with a six megapixel sensor, a two gigabyte card. I mean, you're still getting hundreds of images on a card. It's 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 very practical. What raw? Well, what's the raw file it produces? Is it a proprietary Epson one or or is it the extension? of the file is ERF. I assume that's Epson raw format Epson. or something. Okay, yeah. I have played with a few and I can tell you Adobe Photoshop CC reads it in fine. I did not have to install any third-party software or plugins or anything like that to get it to read. So even though, so this is a 2004 digital camera and, and I found with other digital cameras from that era, that's within the range of you should, shouldn't should have file system compatibility issues like you would. Theo, you reviewed the RD-175. I was and just about to say that. I reviewed at the exact same time the Nikon E2NS from Paul, and both of those had compatible, you know, you, you had to jump through hoops to get the files to be read. But this thing, I literally took, I have a, a SD card reader on my, my desktop, took the memory card out of the card or uh, camera, put it in there, no problems at all. Very cool camera. I have a I have a question for Ira. Yes, sir. You have been in this game for a while now, and you have a, a, an enviable collection of cameras. What do you consider the, the 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 ones that have gotten away? What are the cameras you've been looking for for years that, no matter how much you've looked, you've not been able to uh, add to your collection? You mean besides the Minolta Sky? Besides <laughs> the Sky. That's that's number one on my wish list. That's saying I have a wanted list. That's four pages long. Which is impressive because Ira's collection is four rooms big. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of another one. Oh, I'll give you a good one. A hundred years ago, when I first started collecting, I saw an Erminox 35 millimeter camera. It was the prototype of the Ernox, which later they used on a 4.5 by 6 camera. I have never seen another Ernox 35 millimeter camera. I remember Boris sold, had it and sold it, and I'd never seen another one, but it's on my list. Ira, tell the story of the camera I helped you get. Oh, all right. There are there are four cameras that were made for 127 film. The Ricoh, the Lausar, the Gogoku, and the Baika, B-A-I-K-A. I had all of them except the Lausar. It was on my wish list i've never seen one there was one sold in one of the german auction houses a million years ago 
for eighty gazillion dollars. I'm going through eBay one day and I find one for ten thousand dollars, and it's in Indiana. So I asked Mike to, and it was in a store near him. So I asked him to please go to the store and tell him that price is completely ridiculous. See if he can do any better. P.S. They cut the price by half. Really came through little holes in the phone when he told me that. So I, I got that Lausar camera, which is was the last piece in that group of four. And I posted it on everything, so I'm sure you've all seen it. But that that was very nice. That's one of those things that, you know, networking and actually knowing the people with whom you are yeah. speaking makes all the difference in the world. Well, even though Ira was happy with the purchase, the story I'd heard is that it was a friend of a customer of that store. And the owner doesn't normally do consignments like that, but the owner and the owner of the store and the owner of the camera both went on the same like collect a blend or whatever site. And they saw the estimated price. So they, you know, it, it follows that thing I was saying earlier that when you have a rare camera, it's extremely difficult to come up with a price for it because so few of them have ever been sold. How do you how do you give a value to a camera that's that rare? And that's where I think they'd come up with the ten thousand dollar price was, you know, there's collectible and probably said that. So they go, well, it says ten thousand. You know, that's what I want. You know, what, what Ira was saying was, you know, it's kind of like you're not going to get that. In one hand, had they not done that, that camera probably would have went to a goodwill for five bucks and you would have never had it. So, you know, even though you ended up having to pay, you know, you were happy with the price, but, um, and obviously the seller probably was happy too, but, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you hear those stories of people over-evaluating a camera because they, they can't come up with a value for it, but it worked out in the end. And I, I, you know, Ira was like, all right, you know, go pick it up. I picked it up. Uh, he arranged for payment. I did not shoot it, but I did take a couple pictures of the camera. Uh, it's real pretty. It's a, it's a neat little, like. 127 three by four. It looks for all the world like a like a one copy. Yeah, it's very Leica-esque, like 37, 1938, I think it was made pre-war. Yeah. I have some high resolution photos I took of it just in case I ever wanted to like write a review of it and pretend like I had shot it. <laughs> pretend it's in your possession. I'd get like a Foth Derby and shoot pictures and just pretend like that was the camera that did it. Although Foth <laughs> Derbies never work, so never mind. I was gonna say if you can find them. Mine works. Mine works. It's a cool, that was a cool little camera. Yeah. There you go. This thing looks like, I don't want to say exactly like a Leica because it's got, there's no rangefinder, but you could definitely tell they went for kind of that similar design that was real popular in that area. So uh, it's, a, it's a three by four. It has a focal plane shutter. It's not a leaf yep. shutter. It's a screw mount, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it's a 39 also. Yeah. So Ira has some, um, some unobtainium. James Thorpe, we haven't yeah. heard from you in a little bit here. You got to have some rare something fun to talk about um well there's a couple that aren't rare i mean they're unobtainable financially for me i guess they're kind of rare you know i have a fondness for folding tlrs there's a zeka flex or zika flex that is really? like hovering around like three grand or four grand or something like that i would love to try it is interesting in this hobby where someone says a camera and i know who i know who has one <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And and they happen to be on the podcast where you mentioned it, going to get it right now. Wow. <laughs> and how he does that is just remarkable. Well, while well, he's searching his closet. Oh my God. There it is. There it Look is. At that. I tried it. I took pictures with it. Yeah. 
but unfortunately I put like really expired film in it to try it out on the, on the late evening to shoot with it. So they came out mostly underexposed, but mm. it worked. That's, that's cool. And, and it wasn't too difficult to shoot with either. Like I, I don't obviously didn't have a manual with it. It took me a while to figure out how to open the camera. Yeah. Uh, but once you figure that out and load the film, it's it shoots like a regular TLR. And what's your exact home address again, Rudy? I, I seem to be misleading. <laughs> <laughs> he lives. He lives in Maine. He lives okay. in Maine. I get that'll narrow it down some. Yeah. When you get to folding TLRs, though, the Superfecta, this thing is a massive honking. Yeah. Uh, thing, you know. So I think um, that one's been way heavier than this one. Yeah, this thing is a beast. It, the that's cool thing about these is the back rotates. So oh, you, that's can cool. shoot, you can shoot six by, it's a six by nine TLR. You can shoot it in landscape or in portrait. That's cool. Simultaneously. And it has a, it has a um, waist level finder and it's, it's not going to show on the video, but when you rotate it, there's these little arms that go that like mask off the, the different orientation. But it, yeah, it folds up. And what's really neat about it, too, is it, the, it has a leather case over there. I'm not going to show you that. But the leather case allows you to still, even though it's in the case, you can still open it up and rotate it with the leather case still on it. Like you would think wow. that that'd be, that'd be really difficult to do. But Mike, do you realize what a missed opportunity they had by not including the transformer noise when you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the that's the folding tlr jones and the other jones i have is for a 35 millimeter tlr the contaflex um i'm waiting for rudy to stand up again but i don't see that. <laughs> i can do it faster than he can oh jesus christ that's amazing <laughs> And again, they're they're always hovering around four grand, so it's just, it's a stupid thing. But. The Contaflex meets all three of my earlier criteria for unobtainium. They're rare, they're extremely expensive, and they almost and they don't never work. work. They don't <laughs> work. Paul has one of these that doesn't work either. I could spend a while talking about this camera, but one thing I think is really neat is the focal, the taking lens, and the viewing lens are different focal lengths. I think that's just kind of weird because um. I don't know why they did that, to be honest with you. Oh. Speaking of TLRs, this this one's not a folding one or a 35 millimeter one, but it's rumored to be real, but I'm not sure. But has anyone ever come across a five goats TLR? The Chinese TLR? The, no. Yeah. Because if, if anyone does have one, I've been raising these five goats to swap for it. So please <laughs> contact me. <laughs> in in uh, my uh, unfortunately named articles, I, I made the comment that it would be easier to just get five goats than to get a five goats camera. But one camera that I, I must admit um, on a more serious note is a very collectible one, which a lot of people consider unobtainium, um, especially finding a working one in good condition is the compass by um, just trying to think of the name of the company, Le Couture, the Swiss, um, were they a jeweler? I think they were a jeweler. So I got a line on one right now. Have you really? I do. Oh, and Ira's already got one on camera. Ira's got one right there. Now that thing shoots single frame 35 millimeter, 35, right? Yes. But one one frame at a time. They do sell the roll thing film back for it, but I traded the I had two of these. I traded uh one with including the roll film back for a Marion metal miniature camera. You ever hear of that one? No. No. <laughs> That's real unobtainium. Ray, you said you have a line on one? I Pretty sure I've got a person who's trying to sell one and a red Tessina, one of the estates I purchased last year. Wow. So I'll check for you, Theo. 
<laughs> no worries. I'm not sure I can afford what it's going to go for, but we'll, we'll see. Well, hope springs eternal, as they say. <laughs> I saw a video, though, of somebody loading and shooting one of those compass. I don't think I'd want to try it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Ira, is that one of your homemade cameras? No, this is a Marion miniature metal camera. It's all brass sub-miniature. Here's the film. Here's the. Uh, it looks like I... a cigar cutter. I let's well, shutter. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, oh yeah. that's neat. It's a guillotine shutter. It's a guillotine. Yeah, I was just about to describe it. It's it's like a metal tube with a plate sticking out in front of it with a circle. Yeah. And when he when he triggers it, it falls straight down, and the circle obviously must pass in front of the film plane, exposing the. The image and as we're watching iris just let it go drop all the way to the floor yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> oh hi this is mike this next section we talked to robert about some nikon rangefinder prototype cameras and lenses this section was done while we were sharing video during the recording of the podcast which we cannot make available to you listeners if you would like to follow along though check out mikeackman.com and search for nikon rangefinder prototypes rotoloni report number four I'll include a link in the show notes. Thank you. We haven't heard much uh, from Bob. So Bob, you know, what would be, g- give us an example of like a, of a rare, you know, Nikon for somebody who wants to, who's like a Nikon completist, what would you name as well, the one to get? I used to have it. I don't have it anymore. In 1947, they designed a lens, a 50 millimeter 1.8 lens to replace the 50 F2 that they had made all along. Problem was it used a kind of a rare type of glass, and they only had enough glass to make four of them. They made four, supposedly. Actually, they, we, we found out later on they only made three. I had one uh, at one time. I don't have it anymore. But uh, the other two have never surfaced. Even Nikon doesn't have it. Um, I talked to Fakeda about it, and he remembered it. I even showed it to him, and he just kind of his eyes just kind of glassed over when he looked at it. But uh, <laughs> he didn't remember the development of it. The, the design was next after a while and they came out with the 1.5 instead but um they made three for sure the glass they just that's all the glass they had and i had one of them and it originally was found it came from a collector in michigan who sold it to somebody in japan and then i found out about it and i was able to get it and unfortunately an american collector waved enough money in front of my face for me to part with it i wish i still had it um but there it is there it is yep wow it's not. It's serial number says four. Okay, eight hundred two means forty-eight of the second month of nineteen forty-eight. That's when they actually physically assembled them. It was designed in forty-seven. The serial number says four, supposedly, but according to uh, it's the one in the middle. According to Fakeda, they only had enough glass to make three. He doesn't know where the other two are. I own that. Can- I own that lens for about ten years, and then I eventually did to a collector here in America. Now, Robert, there's something I can see in this image that is you typically don't see in a Nikkor lens. Bubbles, Bubbles. right? Yes. Talk about that. Again, I asked him about that. And again, it was a problem with the glass. It was some type of a glass that they only, the only stock they had of it was something that was made before the war. Okay. And when they went to design this lens, they needed that kind of glass to do it. And unfortunately, the glass uh, had bubbles in it because before the war, they weren't as good at re- removing bubbles as they were after the war. From 1947 on or so, the lenses they made very seldom had bubbles. But this one had obvious bubbles in it, which is another reason why they, they might have nixed the uh, the idea behind it. But it um, 
it was a very unique lens. Uh, I showed him pictures of it. I didn't have it with me. I didn't want to carry it to Japan, but I showed him pictures of it. I actually gave him a set of pictures of it. And uh, he finally remembered. He remembered every everything about it. He said, "I know he knew the man who designed it and everything." That's the that's the second, or that's the, actually the rarest piece I've ever owned. Uh, I had a, a second one. What about this one, Robert? This one is only made as a prototype. As far as we know, it's the only one that was made. So what is it? It's that's a thirty-five one point four, and that was made before Lights's version. And so that's not, was, that's not the lens that came on the, the 2000 edition. No, 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 no. That's a 1.8. This is 35 one right. It's on a prototype SP. That's not an, that's not a standard production camera either. And uh, they made one of them. I've held it in my hands. It was a heck of a lens. But they never, by, by the time they designed this, the rangefinders were just about petered out. They, they didn't, that, that camera is also a prototype that it's on. That's an SP2. And um, that's all prototype stuff. That's 51.0. Uh, also was a prototype. They only made, they actually made two of those. They made two of those. And I actually have seen a picture of two of them side by side with consecutive serial numbers. So Nikkor uh, O, what does the O mean? That's the number of elements, Octo 8. So, so it's an eight element, yeah, 50 right. millimeter, 1.0 lens. Right. So the yeah. fact that it says 50 millimeter and not five centimeters, is it's this an late, SLR lens? Late. or it's, it's a late lens. In other words, they switched the millimeter... Sometime in 58, 59. But, of course, the 51.1 was a huge lens. The 51.1, which everybody knows about, is a very huge lens. This is a 1.0. It's about a third the size. So technology had changed enough where they could design this, uh, they, which they couldn't do before the war. These uh, At the top here, you, you, you're looking at the screw mount prototypes, of which they also made uh, quite a few of. I've seen a couple of them. That lens there, that lens right there is the 35-millimeter lens made in Hansa Cannon mount. They only made one. Hmm. And that lens is on display at the JCII Museum in Tokyo. It's the only one that was ever made. It was made before the war. It's a 35 3.5, and it was made for the Hansa Cannon. So what would have been the problem if you had a Hansa Cannon of putting a wide-angle lens on it? It was, it, you know, the, the lens was removable on a Hansa Cannon, and you could put this on there. You wouldn't have a finder that would be accurate. Right. There you go. That's uh, what I mean. Yeah, and I think basically with, with the people who designed that camera, who, who actually built that camera, Seiko, Seiki, before the war, they didn't, I don't think they really intended you to have separate lenses. I think it would just be a, a regular 50 millimeter, and that was it. Um, they didn't have anything to do with the optics. Nikon designed all the optics of the Hansa Cannon, the rangefinder and everything, the focusing mount. They got around Lights' patent uh, design, the focusing mount, and whatever. It was all done by Nikon. It was all built at the Nikon factory and sent over to Canon, who installed it in the cameras. What's this? This is the SPX. Okay, now what's neat about this thing is you look at the bottom of the, of the throat of the camera, you see what looks like a lever. What that is, is a pretty like a M5 semivar that pops up through behind the lens metering. This was made in 1957. <laughs> 50, actually, 58 by time. It's big. The body is actually based on a Nikon F shell, so it's much bigger than the rangefinders. It's taller and longer. The F was a quarter inch longer or half inch longer than the, regular, than the rangefinders. And it's a working camera. Uh, I held it in my hands in Tokyo. You push it, you cock it, fire the button, and that little semivar pops up there, takes the reading, and it goes back down. And that's their way of coding for, for prototypes, the T's and whatever. The lens mount looks familiar. It's not an M mount because it only has three bayonets. The M, the M mount would have had four. Right. You couldn't really make the Leica mount back then. You can make the screw mount because lights lost all their patents after the right. war. But when it came, but since the Leica M series was post-war, they had new patents and you couldn't infringe on those patents. But they made a Leica type 
uh, mount, which is much easier to, to mount and dismount a lens than the, than the original Nikon rangefinder mount, which is a contacts mount, which is more complicated. But that lever in the bottom actually pops up and it has a little cell in it to read the behind the lens meter. So that's the first behind the lens meter interchangeable lens 35. Boy, Robert, the viewfinder sure looks large. Is there something special about the viewfinder? What they were doing was, first of all, yeah, they made them bigger <laughs> to make it more usable, but right. also has a zoom feature. It has a zoom feature. In it. Kind of, they, they, they took their, their zoom finder, which they called a verifocal, and they built it into the camera and you could actually zoom with it. It was very interesting. Instead of the different uh, like projected frame lines, like on the SP, yeah. as you mount, if you want, if you switched from a wide angle to like an 8.5 or something. You dial in 8.5 and the, the finder would actually change with you. Like the Ectra that lens on there, that's, like a, that. that's a 50, that's a 1.1 lens on there. This lens, that serial number is the only lens that that number, that's the only number ever seen like that. That That's not the regular 1.1 serial number range. That number is unique. We don't know why they picked that number or what's, what's different about this lens. It looks just like everything doesn't look any different than the regular 1.1, but it has that crazy serial number. But it's also a different mount. Yeah, Pardon? it's the mount. Different, different lens mount, so I assume but they... Different lens mount, yeah. yeah. But the serial number is totally unique. Now, whether they made a number one or not, we don't know. Nikon usually starts their lenses at 001. Uh, okay, two more for us. What is this? This is the SP2. They made two SP2s, two versions. I've also had these in my hands in Tokyo. Uh, they're all owned by the... Real factory. quick, they, the SP came out in 57... 57. And then af after that, they released the S3 and the S4, but those right. were lower featured cameras, right. right? So the SP was the technically high, most advanced Nikon. That's always was always top of the line. Yeah. So what you're telling us is they actually did make a successor to the SP yes. called the SP2. They made, they made two of them. They two were called SP2s. They're actually serial numbered, uh, et cetera. The one that you take the back off, the thing is even drilled for a motor. So it's ready to go. It's a totally functional camera. Uh, it has uh, it has a does not have this one does not have a zoom viewfinder. The see how the, where the finder's in the middle though. It's the eyepiece is in the middle. Mm -hmm. In the middle, yeah. That's number serial number five. The other one I think is serial number three or four, something like that. But they made two versions of this, and they differ in certain control features. But they're basically look the same. All of, these are all in Nikon's possession. They never they never got out of the factory. There, this other one up here, it looks a little different. That's another one of the SP2s. Let's look at these. Explain to that's me. That's S2. That's S2 prototypes. What, oh, no, what is this? It looks to me like this is a Leica thread mount. Yes, that's the original. That's called the Leica L. They made two of them. I also had that one in my hands. But they also made a bunch of other screw mount prototypes, which you have in that header on top of your... When you bring, when you bring up that page, you have a header with a yeah, bunch I'm, of pictures of those. We didn't know about those until recently. But I'll get this is the Leica L. This is the Leica L. And they just literally put a Leica screw mount on it. It's an S body with a Leica screw mount. Here's some of the prototypes they made. Look very context-like. What's interesting about this one, look where the rangefinder window is on this one. It's way to the side like a contacts would have been. The contacts, like a contact. They're trying very hard to copy the contacts. And they have self-timer lever, which the rangefinders never had a self-timer until the SP came out in 57. That self-timer looks just like a contact self-timer. So when would these have probably been made? Probably around 50, 50 Six fifty-five, fifty-six, somewhere around there. Maybe a little bit earlier. You see, Nikon. This is based on an S2, so S2 wasn't even in, in design work until fifty-four. Nikon was thinking about coming out with a screw mount as opposed to the bayonet. They decided against the screw mount because they felt that all the other Japanese makers were making screw mount copies. They wanted their camera to be different in some way, so they eventually scrapped the screw mount 
and came out with, and, and adapted the, uh, the uh, contacts, bayonet mount. But they made a bunch of prototypes. There's like seven or eight of them. So when Nikon was designing these, Nikon was a lens company, not a camera yep. company, right? Right. So the meat and potatoes of what Nikon was making at the time were screw mount lenses, right? Uh, at first, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, they, their, own, their first camera didn't come out to 48. So everything they made in 46 and 47 were screw mount. Mostly sold to Canon. It would have actually behooved them to have a Nikon camera that used the Nikkor screw mount lenses. They just, for whatever reason, never it never materialized. No, they just decided against it uh, for marketing purposes. They wanted their camera to stand out from the from the crowd, so they put the bayonet mount on there, which of course has its own advantages over the screw mount. But the contacts mount is kind of weird. But anyway, these are all screw mount cameras they're all this one's based on the s2 body s2 shell that's based on an s shell so you know it's yeah the serial numbers are all prototype of serial numbers they all have most of them have self-timers or at least a cavity for the self-timer none of the nikon rangefinders had self-timers until 1957 thus concludes the nikon prototype section of the camera yes <laughs> <laughs> no i mean I, I i realize that you know prototypes that like don't even exist in the wild don't even qualify as unobtainium this is not a this is this is sort of a prototype i guess you could call this a prototype. what is this we, we call this mother one the serial number of this camera is six zero nine one this is the very first assembled nikon period okay uh they made 20 prototypes numbered prototypes, 6091 through 60920, possibly 21. And they were used for testing and, and changing things and whatever, whatever. This this one, I held that in my hand and also 6094. 6094 looks a little bit different. This camera is not totally complete, uh, but it has all the basic features of what eventually would become the Nikon 1. There's number four, I believe. Yeah, 6094. This is a slightly later one. This one is actually functioning. The 6091 does not function. But this is the fourth prototype that they made. They supposedly did this through 60921. However, a friend of mine here in the United States, as a matter of fact, owns 60922. So he owns actually the first production camera. The, the first 21 were not meant to be uh, sold. And if you also notice, the logo on the top is missing. It says Nippon Kagako in black letters instead of that triangular logo. So it's a very different camera in, in many respects, and they all both showed a lot of signs. They were assembled, disassembled. They were always they were changing things constantly. Made in occupied Japan, you know. Oh yeah, this is this was made in forty six and forty seven. Forty six and forty. They started the actual probably around November of forty six is when they actually started to put these together. All right, we are uh, coming up on that time to start winding down. Does anybody have any unobtainium? recent acquisitions or anything they want to share or talk about or, or ask questions about? you got a good selection of people. What does Paul have? Paul, NPC. We're having a very heavy thunderstorm and rainstorm here. So I've been on mute for a while, but my UPS guy just uh, came to the door about a, an hour ago and I didn't hear him. Uh, but I found uh, this guy in California is sending me stuff. So I got two boxes. One of them had two NPC 195 cameras in it, which is pretty cool. It's it's the uh, Newton Plastics Corporation, which is a misnomer because this thing is air, aircraft grade aluminum, um, a copy of the Polaroid 195. Uh, the other box had 15 pounds of lens hoods in it. <laughs> if anybody needs a Topcon lens hood that fits the UV top cores, 53 <laughs> F2 or 35 35s, I can ruin the market for you right now. <laughs> no, there is no lowest price on these. 
I might be able to ruin the market on lens adapters. So, uh, oh, that we may have a Camerosity fire sale coming up soon. This guy in California has got, I mean, his house is so full of cameras right now that he's actually begging people <laughs> to let him ship stuff to him. All right. So, this shouldn't be a secret. <laughs> Rudy and I were, um, asked by, you know, we, we've, we talked about it a couple episodes ago. Kurt Ingham was a, a very well-liked collector, a very active participant in many of the Facebook groups. And, you know, fortunately he passed away. So him, him and his wife had, had asked Rudy and I to help go through his collection. So Rudy lives about, he's pretty close to where Kurt lived. I'm not, but uh, I flew out to Los Angeles twice and uh, Rudy and I went through this collection and uh, Paul, you know, having the connections he does to be able to sell stuff. I mean, there were cameras that um, you couldn't sell on eBay, but you have a little black book of people who might be looking for specific things. So when when certain items show up, um, sometimes it's it's good to know people who know people. So uh, I, I don't want to talk too much more about it because that's that's a whole discussion in of itself. But um. You know, we, we, the good thing is we've had access to some pretty cool stuff that you wouldn't normally be able to, to play with. So Iris got an Ilford witness. That is not a camera I saw in, um, in Kurt's collection. One thing that's cool about the witness, Ira, maybe you could show it real quick is it has both a screw mount and a bayonet mount. This is the release for the bayonet. Right. But it's not like the Canon seven. So the Canon seven has a screw mount and a bayonet mount too. But the bayonet is separate from the screw mount. On yeah, the Ilford an Witness, al- an alternating thread. The thread itself has a bayonet in it. Yeah, so it still works. It's like really hard. Right here this is the Dalmeyer lens. Okay, I just took that off with a bayonet. I am now going to reach into my goodie drawer and it's gonna pull out a Zuno uh, zero point four f <laughs> something rare. Hey, Mike. Okay, look, Ray's got a Zuno right there. The one one is that a context mount or a screw it's mount? Like, it's screw mount. Screw mount. It was, a, it was a good day to get boxes from back from Don Goldberg. That yeah, was- there you go. This is a scimitar lens, so it just screws right in like any normal Leica. I've never seen another camera like that where it's a like Mar- Miranda has a dual mount. The inner mount is a screw, but the outer mount is a bayonet. The Canon Seven is the exact same way. Rudy, you have the dream lens. The yeah. Canon 7 uses the normal Leica thread mount, and the Canon 7 mounts. Um, sounds like Robert has to go. I'll get off. Bye, bye, Robert. Thanks for sharing us with your Nikon stories. Um, but the the Ilford Witness has a the 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 bayonet and the screw mount is exactly the same thing. Here's another good one. He's got a Melcon 2 with the Zuno lens. Which is a Zuno lens, but that's also a screw mount. So that's probably the same lens Raymond just showed up. Yeah, now this looks for all the world like some kind of Nikon contact thing that got thrown in a rock tumbler. And again, it's just a like a copy, but at least they showed some kind of make it look a little bit different. That exact camera I was holding, I held too when I was at his house. And I actually photographed and wrote an article about it. So if you want to learn more about the Melcon 2, I reviewed it. Give you one more. Okay, one this more. This is what a is Wicca long top 39 millimeter threaded lens mount. It's extremely rare. And I picked up the lens also for a song last year because everybody thought it was the wrong lens. It was marked as a 5.0 50 millimeter xenon lens. It's a 55 millimeter xenon lens. So where what country was the Wicca made? Is that Japan? This is Austria. It's Austria. Wiener, 
Wiener camera. A wiener camera. Oh, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll go real quick. I have two more unobtainiums that I recently picked up. The Cardin, the military Cardin. This is a beautiful camera made in the U.S. It's arguably one of the finest Leica copies ever made by Premier Instrument Group. It has a Kodak Ektar screw mount lens, 47 millimeter F2. Um, and then because um, unobtainium can apply to lenses, I've talked many times both on my site and on this podcast that one of my favorite lenses of all time is the macro Keylar, the Killfit, 40 millimeter or four centimeter F2.8. Here is the, the nine centimeter version of that lens. So it's a 90 millimeter F2.8, same exact kind of design. It extends out, focuses down to, let's see, what does it say? Uh, I don't know. 0 0.3 meters. So what is that? Like a foot? One foot. One yeah, foot. one foot. Yeah. This one's Alpha mount, but they made it. I think they made this in Exacta. I'll go to Exacta. You, oh, you have that same lens? Yeah, yeah. Exacta yeah. mount. That's it's it's it doesn't go quite as close as the um the four centimeter that I usually usually use. Most of the articles, if you've ever been to my site, the pictures of the cameras themselves are taken with a macro keylar because I just really like how you, though that one can get down to four inches. Um, it's nice to be able to have like a, a wide picture of the camera itself. And then if I want to focus in on a small detail of the camera, the the four centimeter one can do that. The 90 or the, I'm sorry, the nine centimeter, obviously, I think would be kind of neat for headshots or a little bit further away macro work. So you're talking about accessories that might be untanium. Uh -huh. I was just I didn't really pay attention to this. But on this Lord 5D, apparently it's got a it's got a bayonet filter mount on it. It's a Bay 41 bay 41 so it's like um like a larger version of the roloflex apparently that's uh, it's harder to find than the camera uh, accessories that is a whole nother wormhole uh, a level of geekery that I, you know sometimes people will pay for for a rare hood you know or uh you know a, a weird back or something like that that you could just go down the and what's what's difficult about rare accessories is sometimes you don't know it's rare you know, you could have something in a box or it, you get a camera bag with a camera that you want in it and tucked in a little pouch in the back of the, the <laughs> lid might be a little filter or some rare accessory. The Ektra, Rudy, you have the Ektra. There's a whole bunch of accessories for the Ektra. And some of them are really uncommon. The wide angle viewfinder is a tiny, yeah, there, he's got the right angle viewfinder there. Or is it the waist level? That's the right angle. That's the right angle. Okay. Yeah, it's a right angle viewfinder. The wide angle viewfinder for it literally just slips over the front window. It doesn't even go in the shoe at all. And it's <laughs> so easily lost. I showed earlier the Konica 3M with the half frame mask, which can easily be lost. So accessories, easy to lose, hard to find. Uh, lenses often sell for way more than some of the rare cameras do. You know, on occasion, the camera bodies can be worth a lot if you can get everything together. That can can really boost the value. But, you know, like for me personally, that's the fun thing about collecting cameras is there's so much variety. There's so many things to, to, to look for. Uh, it's maddening. It's a wormhole. Um, and that's kind of like the, the theme of this episode by, by us calling it unobtainium is that I think every one of us, even Ira, the guy who has everything, there's even stuff that he can't find. Just want to point out one thing. Here in America, we see a lot of Argus cameras, and Argus like are so common. Uh, you don't think ever there will be a rare camera in there. So, but there is one of them, and it's called the Model K. The Model K. Oh wow! Ooh, that's cool. Uh, is that roll film? And um, I have to Looks look like at it. 
It, it is very rare. I just had a chance to look. It's also coming from the Kirk collection. I've read about it in books and never thought of an Argus as something to look out for because you find them everywhere, at least here in America. Um, you mentioned America, though, but if you go to England or, you know, back home in Belgium, it's hard to find the C, the C series. Yeah. What's unobtainium in one country may not be elsewhere. You don't even see the bricks that often down here in Australia. No. Yeah. Theo doesn't see a lot of the same stuff. He's never seen a medalist. I send you five of them. <laughs> have you have you seen a medalist theo not in person no no okay we had an idea for a lightning round we can go pretty quick we lost bob we lost ira but um everybody else is here uh real quick name a camera that's the opposite of unobtainium what's a camera that's so common that you don't want it rudy go first argus break well besides that <laughs> <laughs> what do you have 78 of oh the fast pocket 79 actually 79 oh i counted wrong no the 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 brick is a good example i picked one up at a garage sale for a dollar yeah that's that's the opposite of unobtainium paul what do you see a lot of i don't ever want to see another voigtlander brilliant (laughs) (laughs) james anything that strikes your mind is a camera that's the opposite of unobtainium yeah the k1000 the k1000s yeah they're pretty common they made those for what 25 years yeah raymond Medalta srt you name it. Anything. Yeah, they made Anything. a crap ton of those. Well, and Kmart sold them for a long time. That was like the Kmart camera, wasn't it? It, it was, yes. Yeah. And I'm saying they're bad cameras. So, you know, no. I, I like the SR cameras and I, I have XKs and yeah. I have some really cool melted cameras, but it just seems like I see an awful lot of SRTs. Yeah. Anthony? Down here in Florida, for some reason, we have the world's supply of the Canon AE1 all offered yeah. on on Facebook Marketplace for $400. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, they actually sell for pretty good money up in the Northeast here. $250, $300 price point. Patrick. You know, I don't have a camera. I would just say that anything with um, anything with uh, focus-free optical glass. There you go. All right. <laughs> the w- the big royal view. Yeah. Or the Canoms or whatever they <laughs> with lead weights in them. Patrick, I, I, will, I will say that I have spent the last two days shooting the heck out of the uh, fish eye Takumar 18 millimeter F11, which is about the size of a body cap, which is crazy because I've also got a 17 millimeter Irix for my Pentax K1. That's the biggest lens that I own. Uh, This thing is so small, but it has no focus and no aperture blades. It literally just has the disc with the holes for the four different apertures drilled into it. Like Waterford stops? Yeah, like like, like an old box camera. Yeah. So you can do 11, 16, 22, or 32. But yeah, there's zero focus optical glass. Takamar lens. How is the image quality from that? All over the map. If you shoot it at <laughs> F11, it looks like a smeary charcoal drawing. I was shooting <laughs> black and white. It, it looked like almost like a tilt shift where there are like little bits that are in focus and bits that are out of focus, but you can't tell how they're out of focus. So they should be in focus because they're like in the same plane with what is in focus. But then you stop it up to 22 or 32, and it's as crisp as any 18 millimeter glass I've ever seen. Wow. Very cool. But no focus at all. Like, it's just like, and I and I played around trying to see, you know, if I if I had it at F22 or F32, three feet to infinity, two feet to infinity was in focus. Theo, did you get to name your non-unobtainium? It's it's actually something people call unobtainium a lot because of the price, but I, I could never bring myself to do it. Is a contacts T two, I, I I just can't 
yeah, I just couldn't bring myself to pay the kind of money that's being asked for those things at the moment because they're they're just so overpriced. But to be honest, if people are happy with them, they're not overpriced. But for me, they are. You, you know, Theo, I, I was thinking that pretty much any point and shoot that costs more than one twenty five. Yeah, yeah. Rudy, can you think of a point and shoot? Uh, I guess not point and shoot, but a highly regarded automatic camera that's that's difficult to find working. The Context G two or yeah, the Context G two is a uh, a highly praised, uh, poor reliability camera. For me, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and there's this one podcast. I one of the hosts just won't shut up about this camera, and he talks about it in every single episode. And I think it's completely ridiculous, but it's the Mamiya Seven. Is this thing is just a piece of junk? <laughs> oh, geez. oh, you're off my Christmas you? list, mate. You're off my Christmas list. <laughs> Shall we go on vacation? Poor guy. Yeah. I'll throw one out there that I actually like this camera. I think it's it's very good as a great lens, but it's so common. I, I think it has very little value is the Ashika Electro, Electro 35. I mean, those things are just so common. A lot of people trash on them because they don't support full manual mode. But when you find one that, that's an actually working edition, they're actually really good shooters. I think they're very attractive. It's just they made millions of them and you could just find them like a dime a dozen. The black ones are nice. The black, yeah, the, the, the GSN, G- the GTN. We uh, have have reached our limit for this show. Um, I wanted to thank you guys for coming. James Thorpe, Raymond, Nason, uh, Rudy, it's awesome to have you back again. Patrick Raps back again. Uh, Bob had to go. Uh, Ira had to go. But, uh, you know, we had uh, our last episode. It took us a little bit longer to get out than we had hoped. Um, scheduling conflicts, believe it or not, each of us have lives. And, you know, and sometimes it can be hard to to work around that and get things out. But uh, we do like to get these shows out to you. The panoramic episode was was just awesome. So much fun to do. This one was great. There was a question asked in our Camerosity Facebook group, like, what does open source mean? And it was it was Alex Loix who gave the best explanation that, you know, we kind of throw out there. Uh, an, an idea, but um, it's up to you guys to, you know, direct us and bring things to talk about um, where these, where these shows go are, um, are you, you just never know, you know, like I said, you know, it, it's so much fun to do this show. We did this last year, the month of August, uh, we're going to take a break. Paul's going to go down to sunny Arizona and have some time. Um, believe it or not, Paul actually does other things than play with cameras. He's a, a folk musician, Americana. What is it, Paul, that you do down there? It's in Scottsdale. It's a, a Americana folk gathering. Oh, I'll have to go check it out. I'm over in I'm North Phoenix. Oh, cool. Well, you're you're near Fountain Hills. No, no, I'm on the I'm on the west side, I-17, just about Carefree Highway. Okay. Yeah, we're we're on the corner of uh, Indian Bend and North Scottsdale Road. How many years have you been doing this, Paul? Twenty four years. 24 oh, years. Cool. Yeah, That's Patrick. Awesome. Patrick, when is that? When is it? It's August. Uh, well, we're, we're doing a Kruger Brothers show on Monday the 7th. They're at MIM on Saturday, the, Sunday the 6th. And then they're playing at our place on Monday the 7th. And then our event is the 8th through the, the 13th. Through the 13th, good, because I'm, I'm in I'm in Munns Park from the, for a week. So I'll email you my phone number. Call me. I'll, I'll, I'll have passes for you if you want to come. Oh, that's great. I'll 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 message you because I I see you on Facebook all the yeah, time. Yeah, I, I I know. We see he might even have some lens hoods for you too. I got lens <laughs> hoods. I got some top UV top cores. I got the hoods. 
All right. Um, so we're going to be taking the month of August off. We will be back in September. Uh, we have no idea what we're going to talk about. We're going to start off with season three. I don't know if that means we're going to change anything. Maybe it'll be more of the same from what it sounds like from you guys. You like what we've been doing. But um, as always, the topics and discussions in the Camerosity podcast are decided entirely by you, even though we sometimes have uh, an idea of what we want to talk about, where they go, or, or we just don't know. Um, so I want to thank you guys for all the feedback. The Facebook group has grown. We're up, what, to what, 800 people, Theo, about right now? Uh, roughly that, yes. 800. We have some great followers on Instagram. The show has been breaking records. Our last episode, 51, is already our highest listened to episode. So we keep breaking records each episode. You know, Ray, James, Patrick, you know, everybody else who's who's joined previous episodes who who participate with us in the Facebook group. I just want to say thank you. I feel like I'm speaking for, for Paul, Anthony and Theo, but they'd probably say the same thing too. So uh, does anybody yeah. else have anything else they want to say real quick? Send me your Snyder. <laughs> Snyder 35. Yeah. It's a NICA. <laughs> just, just take a NICA and a marker. <laughs> All right. You guys have a great night and uh, we'll see you in September. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good break, everyone. Bye. Bye. So